Well, this morning, we turn the corner in our series in Ephesians. We, uh, we turn from doctrine to application. And like many of Paul's uh, writings, the message moves from theology to practicality. People have explained it this way. From the indicative to the imperative, from creed to conduct, from exposition to exhortation, I like to explain it this way. Now that you know what Christ has done through Christ, I'm talking at you, talking at myself, now that you know that you are in Christ, now that you know that you've been changed from death to life, now that you know that you've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, if you're in Christ, live like it. That's what Paul's saying. But he's not saying it in a voice like this. He's saying it in, live like it. We have so much. So much. And even better, this is how you do it. Good, I'm not left out there to wonder, what what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to do this? He tells us. William Barclay said it well. He says, when a man enters into any society, he takes upon himself the obligation to live a certain kind of life. And if he fails in that obligation, he hinders the aims of his society and brings discredit to its name. Another adds, an employee is obligated to work according to the rules, standards, and purposes of his company. Members of service clubs obligate themselves to promote the goals of the club and to abide by its standards. When someone joins an athletic team, he's obligated to play as the coach orders and according to the rules of the sport. Human society could not operate without such obligation. Neither can a church. Neither should a Christian. If we are in Christ, if we are Christians, I hope that we have the spiritual security to understand we're loved. I pray that we understand that we have the spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing that we can possibly have. But are we living in a way that conforms to the gospel standards and obeying the Christians, the the Scripture's commands? Are we living in that way? I think what a lot of people think, they, they say the words. But if the words go into your heart, actions follow. And that's what Paul's talking about. I would ask that you stand and that we together read, together read. You're going to read with me the first verse of today's passage. It can be found on page 977 in your pew Bibles. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Now, I'm going to start. Now, I need you to help me with it, though. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Did you hear that? 
Because you said the words. We heard it. And to walk, what it means to walk, it's a Hebrew idiom. It means to live life that way. We're called to live a certain lifestyle. And you know what? We're called to live it well. To walk means to live. May we be impacted by God's Word this morning. May God bless the reading of His Word. Please be seated. Well, what kind of lifestyle are we asked to emulate? What, what does Paul write from us? What, in God's Word, what are we supposed to do? It's simply this, walking in unity. Walking in unity. And as we'll soon see, it's twofold. It's walking first with the Lord, and it's walking also with brothers and sisters. It's always twofold. It's not island Christianity. It's not God, me, and myself, and I, and that's, that's all it is. No, it is God with me, with you, together. How's this to be accomplished? Well, in this passage, Paul stresses two general ways of maintaining unity. First, in verses 1 through 3, the means of maintaining unity. And then, in, in verses 4 through 6, the basis of maintaining unity. To have the means simply means, <laughs> means simply means, that's interesting. It means to be able to accomplish something, to have the ability or the resources to accomplish what you've been called to do, what the task at hand, what it needs. And the means have been established in all of chapters 1 through 3. Those are the means. Those are how we can establish, how this can happen. I'm not going to read everything. I'm not even going to repeat what I've said, but chapters 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, that's how we can accomplish this, because it's Christ in us. It's our new identity in Christ, your identity. Look at the first verse that we read earlier. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called. He, Paul is a He's an outstanding writer, and he has the Holy Spirit guiding him in this, but he subtly reminds the readers that he's a prisoner of the Lord. And you go, yeah, so what? Do you know that obeying and following and walking with the Lord Jesus, it can be costly? It cost him his freedom it might cost us our freedoms. But God is worth it. Christ is worth it. Paul doesn't ask them, the Ephesians, the ones he's writing to, and he doesn't ask us to do something that he hasn't done himself. And know this, Jesus doesn't either. Jesus has walked before us, and He's been through every single thing that we'll ever, ever come across. He urges, He entreats, Paul begs them to walk in this way. Please, 
Walk this way. It's on a scale of importance. From 1 to 10, it's a 10. It's 10. Now, worthy comes from the Greek word axios, which means it's a a root idea of a weight. Think of a scale. And the word, it's the word that we get the English word axiom from, which means of equal weight. Equal weight. If you're a student of math, which I'm not, I'm not. I have smart people to take care of me in that way. The axiom indicates doing something to each side of the equation so it remains true. You have to keep this, it has to remain true. What's being said here is that because we have been given such great spiritual blessings, we've been given life, we should live lives worthy or equal to those realities. He gave His life for us. We need to be able to give our lives for Him. Specifically, worthy, equal to our calling in which we've been called. Well, you'd ask, well, what's the calling? What's the calling? It's a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. And you've been called to live holy before Him. It's what Romans 8 details. Romans 8, 30. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. We have the means to be able to walk in unity. Now, before we go any further, I want to be very specific. What kind of unity is Paul speaking of? What what is he talking about? Because many people get the wrong idea. He isn't advocating, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. No, the future is not ours to see, que sera, sera. He isn't saying that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and whatever happens, it'll all end up well in the end. No, he's not advocating that. He didn't have a coexist bumper sticker on the back of his horse. No, the unity to be maintained is found in verse 3 eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit. The Spirit. God. Unity. And when eager, it means what it means. Be eager to do so. Zealously pursue it. It's urgent. Unity is urgent. It's a focus on God who is the one, the three-in-one, that unite us as one body. Our Kent Hughes gives this illustration, and it's a very good one that helps explain what kind of unity is needed. He writes, and we can think with him. It'll never happen, but it's an interesting thought. Suppose for the moment 
that by a miracle we could bring some of the great Christians from centuries together under one roof. From the fourth century, you would come the great intellect Augustine of Hippo. From the 10th century, Bernard of Clairvaux. From the 16th, the peerless reformer John Calvin. From the 18th century would come John Wesley, the great Methodist advocate of free will. And along with him, George Whitfield, the great evangelist who spoke both in England and in America. From the 19th century comes the Baptist, C.H. Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, and D.L. Moody. And the 20th century, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and finally from the 21st, I'll throw my in there, John MacArthur. We're all together in one room. We're hearing these men. They're speaking. They're talking. And do you know that if they took a vote, most people, most of these men in the room would not agree. You couldn't get them to agree on what they were going to talk about, except, except, Underneath it all would be unity. Why? Because Jesus, when they spoke about Jesus, when they talked about Jesus, and when they brought up Jesus and they focused on Christ, their unity would be great. Back to verse 3. Go ahead and keep it up there, please. Just, just run it. Thank you. Notice that it says maintain unity, not attain. Think about that for a while. Maintain. And to maintain, it is hard work. Paul is under house arrest as he's writing this, and I think he looks and, you know, as he's chained to this guard, he could have people freely enter, bring him things out. He could talk, he could speak, but he couldn't leave his room, and the guard was chained to him at all time. It's as if Paul wants the church to be bound together like he's bound by a chain to his guard, but not a literal chain, but bound together in what he writes in verse 2. How are we bound together? With character. With character. First, with humility. With all humility. Now, to say that humility was well thought of in the Greek and Roman culture, it wasn't. In fact, they didn't even have a word for humility. The Greeks didn't have a word for humility, and the Romans didn't have a, have a word for it. So how did Paul write it? Well, he combined a bunch of words to get what we get, humility. Paul was forced to use a compound word that described the characteristic that God views as positive. Regarding humility, the Scriptures say this, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The quality was portrayed by Christ Himself. 
He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now think with me. What's the opposite of humility? What's the opposite? Pride, arrogance, the natural tendency for us is to boast when we've done something, well, good. Done something that, oh, we, we really did it this time. Did you see me? Did you hear me? We like to be noticed. We like to be noticed. It reminds me of an old, oldies song, and I remembered it this morning, and I had to write it in. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. <laughs> I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. <laughs> I have to stop there because he starts using words that I can't repeat in church. <laughs> but it made me laugh, and you're thinking, how often are we like that? You know, and the ironic thing about humility, think with me here, is that if you say you have it, you don't. Oh, I'm humble. Right. No, you're not. No, you're not. Well, how do we begin to display the characteristic of humility? Ask the Lord by His Spirit to put to death pride in your life. Not just so you can handle it, put it to death. Begin to brag on what God is doing in others' life. And always give credit to the Lord for anything that is thought of good that comes from you. With humility and gentleness, and gentleness. Unity is promoted with equality of, the quality of gentleness. The word is often described and translated meekness. Now hear me, meekness is not weakness. It is not weakness. What it shows is a self-controlled, tempered spirit. It's power under control. Picture a horse. I mean a big war horse. A horse that could do anything. It could break through any barrier if it, would, if it wanted to, but it's under control of its rider. For us, we're under control of spirit. We're under the control of God. And again, the gentleness that is spoken of here is the power under control by God. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, how does someone meek respond when they're confronted? 
I know, we always have to go to Jesus, don't we? Always, always Jesus. Can you imagine what his brothers felt like? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers coming after him. And Peter, Peter's there. He takes his sword out. He's going to fight for Jesus. And what's Jesus telling? Of course, after Peter swings and hits a guy in the ear, takes it out. What's he say? Put the sword away. Don't you know that I could call as many angels as I need? I'm here to do the will of God. He chose to obey God. And the characteristic a Christian needs to exhibit, that's what they need to promote unity. Next, with humility and gentleness, with patience. The wooden translation, this is how you would translate it in first-year Greek. And you're going, I don't know what to say here. Long-tempered, long-suffering. That means they're patient. They suffer long. Suffer long. And it always brings to mind what you never pray for. You pray for patience, and you end up with trials and tribulations because God's going to show you and show those around you how a patient person acts because we get a chance to live it out. We get to display patience in a, in a firsthand way. Well, the patient who is, uh, the patient, the person, the person who is patient endures circumstances that are negative and doesn't give in to them. There are two things here. When we deal with things and we deal with people. Well, okay, we, when we deal with things when they're negative. Examples. How many years did Abraham have to wait for an heir? I don't know. I didn't, I didn't do the math. I told you already I'm not a math person. The next one was written down for me. How many years did Noah wait while he was building the ark? 120. <laughs> Concerning patience when dealing with people. The Old Testament prophets, when they were called by God, everybody honored them, right? Everybody listened to them, right? No, they were mocked. They were abused. And many of them were killed. Well, patience is exhibiting self-restraint after and in the midst of being wronged. In the society that Paul wrote, this was crazy talk. The philosopher Aristotle wrote, he said that the greatest Greek virtue, listen to me, the greatest Greek virtue was refusal to tolerate any insult and the readiness to strike back. Our culture is not that far from that. Stick up for your rights. Don't let him do that to you. 
What's God say? Our example, the Lord Jesus Christ. Did he ever complain with what he was asked to do? No. Did he ever strike back at others when he had the power of the universe in his hands? Should a person who's been saved by Christ and been placed into a spiritual temple who God resides in complain that the task that God has given him isn't as glamorous and as exciting or timely as someone else who is next to you or we see? Do we have any right to complain when God puts us in a place? You've been placed in, a pla- in the place where you're at because he will use you there. We don't have a right to look at others and say, I wish I was them. No, you're who you are, and you are who God made you. We must be patient with our circumstances and with others. The fourth characteristic of one who walks in unity combines all the previous. Bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. An interesting story that I read this week comes from the late theologian J. Dwight Pentecost. He wrote about a church split that was so serious that each side filed a lawsuit to dispossess the other from the church property. And as a side note, disregarding the biblical truth and biblical command to not bring a lawsuit against fellow believers. Well, the civil courts, they threw it out. But eventually it came to a church court where it should have been in the first place. But the higher judiciary, you can tell that Pentecost is writing this from a different, different day. The higher judiciary of the church made its decision and awarded the church property to one, the, to one of the two factions. The losers withdrew and formed another church in the area. Now this is the kicker that I want you to hear. In the course of the proceedings, the church courts found that the conflict had begun at the church dinner, at a church dinner, when an elder received a smaller slice of ham than a child seated next to him. I know we chuckle, but it's tragic. This is true. He goes on to say the obvious. The root of the standoff was an absence of patience and forbearing love, not to mention humility and gentleness. These are the means how to accomplish the task of walking in unity, what we have been given by Christ's death and resurrection. You might say that the bar that has been set for us I'm going to be real honest with you. I've got a long way to go. A long way to go in this. And I'm sure that you do too. But we keep walking with Christ, right? 
We keep walking with Him. We walk with the Savior. We keep coming to Him even when we've fallen. He wants you to come to Him, not run away, not make excuses. but to come to Him and seek the characteristics through the Spirit that He provides. Paul's not imploring us to do something we cannot, that cannot be reached. Hear me. God never commands us to do something that we cannot do. Well, how can we reach that goal? How can we hit the mark? What's the basis for maintaining unity? This is probably the best part of the sermon. The basis. What's the established foundation for maintaining words, for maintaining unity? Two words. Two words that describe our one great God. The two words, the Trinity. In these next verses, describe the Spirit, the Son, the Father. explained in the sevenfold appearance of one. A commentator writes everything that relates to salvation, the church, and the kingdom of God is based on the concept of unity, as reflected in Paul's use of seven ones in these verses. The cause or basis of the outward oneness is inner oneness. The cause of outward oneness is inner oneness. Practical oneness is based on spiritual oneness. It's Christ. It's the Father. It's the Spirit. It's God. In verse 4, Paul speaks of the unity found in the Spirit. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Now, we understand and we know and we've heard the body refers to the church. It's a picture We've already witnessed this in chapter 2, but it's also echoed in Paul's writings throughout. And I'm not going to read them all, but I'm going to tell you where it's found. Echoed in Romans 12, 4. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17. Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verse 12. And then verse 13, then verse 20. And in Colossians 3, 15, where he recaps all these passages... When he writes, this is it, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart to which indeed you were called in one body. We are all members of one, the body of Christ, held together by one Spirit. Through the one Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12 reveals, for in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. Speaking of the Spirit, Hughes is helpful here. He said the Holy Spirit creates, fills, coordinates, orchestrates, and empowers the body of Christ. This accounts for the delightful serendipities. You can tell he wrote that. I did not. We all experience when meeting other believers so different from us. I have seen this. Other believers who are so different from us, our brief soul fellowship with a taxi driver on the way to the airport in Washington, D.C., he speaks of that. He speaks again of a heartfelt conversation in Switzerland. 
I myself have had conversations with people in Thailand, with people in Mexico that I don't know from Adam. But one thing we have in common, no, two things we have in common. We're humans and we're in Christ. And all of a sudden there's a bond, there's a unity, and we're together. We're together. And I'm sure many of you have felt the same way, have experienced this as well. We've been baptized into the same body, and we connect. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Well, what call? I mentioned it earlier. Each one of us has been called to be holy and blameless before him. That comes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It's the Spirit who has sealed us, guaranteeing each of us our inheritance. Our basis of unity is in the Spirit. It's also in the Son, verse 5. How do we know what Paul, that Paul's using the word Lord? Why, how do we know that he's speaking of the Son? Here, here's my, I'm, this is my great uh, apologetic of this verse. Well, in, in the first verse, in chapter 4, he spoke about the Spirit. In verse 6, he's going to speak about the Father, God the Father. So this verse, the Lord, he has to be speaking about the Son, right? No? Didn't work for you? Our Lord... He shares the same identity, title, and authority with the Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. One title, same authority. He is far more. He is far more than any man. He's far more than any prophet. He is far more than any angel. There is no salvation found in any other name other than the name of Jesus, which flows into one faith. This faith that Paul's talking about here is not a synonym for belief, but it speaks of the Christian faith. It's the right doctrine that's taught in the New Testament. Christ the Lord is the object of that faith. He is faith. He is the Christian faith. He is your hope. This faith is what Jude spoke about in his short letter when he wrote in, in verse 3, excuse me, verse 3 of Jude. He said, Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And because of that faith in the Lord Jesus, it leads to one baptism. We have participated in that baptism if you are in Christ. The spiritual baptism takes place at the moment of belief, and when you are raised from spiritual death and given new life, you have all been baptized into Christ. 
when we've seen the Spirit's work regarding unity and the sons, and lastly now the fathers. Verse 6, one God and one Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Warren Wiersbe writes, the marvelous oneness of believers in the family of God is evident here. For God is over all and working through all and in all. We are children in the same family, loving and serving the same Father, so we ought to be able to walk together in unity. Just as an earthly father, excuse me, an earthly family, the various members have to give and take in order to keep a loving unity in the home. Let me repeat that. We have to give and take. So God's heavenly family must do the same. The Lord's Prayer opens with our Father, not my Father. You and I are different. We have different likes and dislikes. We have different preferences. But we have the same Father. As we conclude this morning, some truths come to light. Our unity is rooted in the Holy Spirit. It's rooted in the, in the Son, and it's rooted in God the Father. It's rooted in the Holy Trinity. They can never be separated. They can never be separated because why? Because God is eternal. For them to be separated, there would, the world, the universe would blow up. It's not going to happen. They are one. They will always be one. There will always be, though, three persons in that oneness. If this is so, and it is, it is not possible to split the church because we've been purchased, sealed, and put together by God Himself. Now, there's one little problem. There's an elephant in the room. Why can't some of us get along? Why do we sometimes push others away? I'm not going to answer that. If any of these points this morning have not struck a nerve, maybe this one will at least give us pause to think. Whatever you say about the church, however you talk about the church, whatever you, however you see the church being, this is what it is. It is God's church. It's His church. 
It is made up of God's people, which are there only because of what God has accomplished, and it exists, it exists for God's glory. That's why we're here. That's why our brothers and sisters are around us, because it's the, for God's glory. And because he's given us the means for maintaining unity, and he himself is the basis for maintaining unity, we must strive to do just that. We are growing in this so much. We really are. But we'll never be there completely. But yet he calls us to be there completely. Understanding that God himself has already worked unity into every fabric of our experience together as Christ's body. We are already unified. Let's show it. Let's live it. Let's walk in unity. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to be instructed today by your word. And we, Lord God, fall short, but you don't. You have so much patience with us. You have much, show so much gentleness with us. We thank you for that. May you build our love for each other. May you expand it so it begins to overflow. So when other people, when other places of worship, when other churches see us, they see a group of people who are going, my goodness, those people love each other. And they are unified. Lord God, we pray that. And thank you for giving us all we need to be able to accomplish that for you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.